Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. I'm Clarence Boone, and welcome to this edition of Bring It On. We're a multiple award-winning show celebrating over 14 years as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting African Americans. Now, we're now sort of working on some audio here, but nevertheless, we'll continue. Uh, one of the things we want to do tonight, there's an, another wonderful production that's coming on uh, from the Resilience Production team, and they're presenting a project called Sentences from the Pen to the Page. It's a compelling piece of original theater, radically existential, thorough spoken word, story, and song. And this production examines the value of life, the penalty of death, and hope for humanity by dealing with the effects of life and death sentences on those serving them as well as their relationships to the people outside. Sentences from the pen to the page features the writings of Glenda Breeden with contributions from Philip Stroud at Pendleton Correctional Facility and the writing group at, went at the women's block of Monroe County Jail. Sentences from the Pen to the Page is directed by Daniel Bruce with musical uh, directorialship from Daniel Loge Regal and it is adapted for stage by Gladys Devane and Daniel Bruce. The performance is 85 minutes with no intermission and it deals with the mature content with mature content and is not recommended for children under 13. All performances are at the Ivy Tech John Waldron Rose Fire Bay, and tickets are $20 at the box office. Performances are Friday, September 6th at 7 p.m., and there's a reception and talkback following the performance, and on Saturday, uh, September 7th at 2 p.m., and at 7 p.m., there is a performance going on at that time. Now. I've invited Bill Breeden and his lovely wife Glenda and Danielle Bruce from the production Resilience Production Team to come and provide an overview of the upcoming production. And Bill, Glenda, Danielle, welcome to Bring It On. Hi Clarence, thanks for having us. Hi, thank you. I'm oh, excited about it. I, I am too. And I think um, we're going to adjust one volume. There you go. We're going to adjust one volume here. All right. Um, I'm excited to talk about this because uh, I know that the Resilience team puts together some pretty fantastic productions. And on that note, uh, Danielle, and what and who comprises the Resilience Productions? Uh, Resilience Productions is made up of myself, Gladys Devane, and Elizabeth Mitchell. Mm -hmm. And we each have our roles, and we work together and kind of cross over at times, but basically we have Liz who does a lot of the research and Gladys who then writes it for the stage and then it comes to me and I direct it. 
and so that's how things usually work. Now, granted, we, we work with each other so fluidly that it doesn't always stay in those little compartments, but that's, that's the idea. At least that's what it says on our cards. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, a three-member crew at this point, uh, and you all have worked together on a number of different projects. What, what projects have you worked together on? Let's see. Well, we started together um, in 2016 for Indiana's bicentennial with uh, Resilience Indiana's Untold Story. And then when it had brought that into Monroe County's bicentennial, which was 2018, with Stories of Monroe. And we've done other pieces that have been kind of individual pieces not tied to either of those performances around the community as well as the state. Okay. And let's go around and, and get some quick introductions from Bill and Glenda. Bill, uh, if you'll start off. Well, I've been around Bloomington for a long time, and uh, I served the Unitarian Universalist Church for about 14 years. But I started in prison ministry in the 90s uh, at uh, Wabash Valley uh, Correctional Facility down in Carlisle, Indiana. And uh, and I've also visited a lot of prisoners, a lot of inmates at the Monroe County Jail over the years. So prison ministry has been kind of one of my sidelines for two or three decades now. Okay. Here in Monroe County, as you said, abroad, um, bordering counties as well. Right. Well, I, I don't go to too many counties. I have done the Morgan County Jail before mm -hmm. uh, visiting. I get calls from prisoners who ask, uh, ask me to visit or prisoners' families. Okay. And uh, if they call, I, then I try to see them. Uh, most of it has been in Monroe County Jail and uh, in Wabash Valley uh correctional facility, and then I'm also a spiritual advisor for men on federal death row in Terre Haute. Okay. All right. Now, that, in call, that, that entails getting phone calls, visitations, letters. Yeah, um, all, of the, all of the above. Okay. Uh, and I've been doing the federal death row for about 12 years, mm -hmm. uh, which has been my primary thing for the last 12 years. And if I'm not mistaken, inmates that get sentenced to death uh, have automatic appeals in that process. Yeah, yeah, it goes for, it's a long process, there's no question about it. Uh, it needs to be a long process. Right, right. Well, it needs to be done away with, in my opinion, but mm -hmm. but certainly if you're going to execute somebody, you want it to make sure, given the fact that we've had, you know, literally more than, more than a couple of hundred found innocent on death row in the United States now, it's a pretty serious effect. And and actually, back during the Bush administration, uh, George Bush administration, they were wanting to lower the time between conviction and execution and get it down to two years. Mm -hmm. But the average of innocent people found on death row in the United States is about seven or eight years. So there would, uh, would be a lot of those people dead before we found them innocent. And no doubt you've seen and, and heard a lot of things. Uh, yeah, it's it, you know it's a real gift. A, a man wrote me uh, 12 years ago and asked me to uh, come visit him. He got my name from another prisoner on federal death row, and uh, he said he had, at that time he had planned on giving up his appeals and, and asking for an execution because they spend 23 and a half hours a day in solitary confinement, so six right. by ten cell, and uh, it's really a, a, it's maddening. And uh, he was afraid of going to hell, and so he asked me to help him get over his fear of hell. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, the first thing I said, where do you think you are? <laughs> this is hell. Right. Uh, you don't have right. to worry about any place any worse than this. And uh, so, actually, it became one of his jokes later. You know, He said, I don't have to worry about hell. I'm already here. Mm -hmm. But uh, he's changed a lot in 12 years. He was, uh, he's, he's become a pretty remarkable man. During this conversation, 
for this hour, I, I do want to come back and talk about reconciliation mm-hmm. initiatives um, mm-hmm. with that length of time from sentencing to execution or, well, to carrying out the execution. Sure. Uh, there are opportunities, I understand, maybe more now uh, for offender and victims or fi- victims' families to come together. But I, I, at some point, I'd like to address that with you. Glenda. Yes. Thank you for uh, gracing us today with your presence. Can you talk a little bit about what you're contributing to uh, the sentences production? Well, um, a lot of my stories and poems and songs that I've written are the main, you know, it's what this play is. It's very exciting. Um, Gladys Devane got in touch with me after Resilience finished Stories of Monroe and um, said that she'd really like to do something her next she wanted her next big thing to be about incarceration mm-hmm. and so she asked me to send her some some stories and and poems because um, I had introduced her to a little bit of it when last year um, the resilience team went to Pendleton uh, correctional facility with me I went with them and uh, and they put on the Rosa Parks show and, uh, and another uh, piece while they were there with I think there were 150 or so men there, so. and um, and they were just really impressed with the men, and and it was a it was a learning experience, a life changing experience for them, as well as it was for the men, as far as they're seeing these men as human beings in a way that they really hadn't before, and so after we had done that, um, and they had finished the stories of Monroe, well then Gladys said, hey, I, I need to do something you know, about this. I want to do the next theater production to be out this about this. So she wrote to me and I sent her some stuff and we started talking back and forth. So that's kind of how it got started. And it's just really been exciting to see um, how my writings have been adapted for the stage and um, and having Dan Lodge Regal as the musical director and his taking my songs and it's just, it's going to be powerful, and I'm so excited about it. I've been mi- visiting a man, he's at Pendleton now, Philip Stroud, who also has some writing in this play. Um, I've been visiting him since 2008, and he used to be at w- Wabash, and now he's at Pendleton. And, um, and he has, he talks about how I've changed his life and how important it has been for him to know me through these 10 or so years. And I feel the same way. It has, it's, it's been a, a life-changing experience to know someone, to, to become friends with, very close friends with someone who is in prison. It's, a, it, it's just an amazing experience, and, uh, and it has inspired my writing in ways that, you know, I, never, I couldn't have written without it. And, um, and so I'm, I'm honoring him in doing this. I, just, I think it's really it's going to be powerful, and I can't wait for people to see it. Terms such as uh, warehousing, discarding, mm-hmm. sequestering, mm-hmm. Um, forgetting, mm-hmm. uh, that old uh, phrase, uh, put someone up under the jail, mm-hmm. meaning tuck them away for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that certainly comes to mind, and, and these are things that I know through your writings you've been able to dispel some of these commonly held notions. And these are human beings. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not animals. They're not less than human beings, but uh, and they and they may be the first to admit, yes, I've done wrong, mm-hmm. but they are still due certain uh, uh, dignities and, uh, um, of course, certain rights that we all enjoy. 
And uh, we, we began with some comment from Danielle Bruce, um, who I've known for quite some time because she's worked with the Resilience uh, Projects before, and we had you on the show. You bring such a talent to uh, this particular production company. And I see that you're once again taking the directorial reins on yet another riveting project. And uh, with the addition, I guess, of musical director Daniel Lodge Regal, uh, can you comment on how you plan to cast this production and then maybe a thought or two on how he plans to score this project? Well, I think um, just to kind of jump back to what Glenda had said a moment ago about her work being the what really motivated this whole show. And um, I think it's there's a sensitivity in her work and an awareness in her work that when Gladys brought me on board and I got to read it, I I said, this is, this is incredible. I mean, it started off with about 35 pieces that we kind of had to weed through and figure out how are we going to kind of scale this down and, and get a show out of it if, if that's what we're going to do. And so I've looked at them and I kind of, went through them and tried to find the ones that had the most texture and the most variety, but still carried a really solid message. And I think it is the humanity in all Mm -hmm. of them that is really the message here. And as as you said, you know, there's, there's dignities and there's, um, there's factors that we maybe take for granted on the outside Mm -hmm. that is really highlighted throughout this show. And in terms of getting a, casting it and getting a like a, a full range of actors and people that can really come together and work in different capacities was really kind of tricky and I was really fortunate to know enough actors that I was able to contact them and say I'd like to introduce you to this project see if you're interested in doing it and we were really blessed they all said yes we would we'd really like to do this and so bringing them to the stage with these voices a lot of it there's no pyrotechnics in the show it's not a sensational show it is really about the voice the voices of these actors representing the message you know and sending home that message and I don't think it needs to be cluttered with anything other mm-hmm. than that mm-hmm. and as far as Dan's work on it um, this is my first time working with Dan, and it's been extraordinary because he is exceptionally talented mm-hmm. and so accommodating, is able to really adapt when there there's a situation that might need something else or it's he can just sense. He's got great instincts and great insight, and he just can sense what maybe it needs to fill that moment, you know? And it's been... He's arranged all of Glenda's songs mm-hmm. for the stage, which has been really wonderful. And there's more of a sample. I wouldn't call this a musical by any means, but there's music through the whole show and all original music. But it's it's just kind of a sampling. And it's really there kind of as a, kind of a heartbeat of the show. You know what I mean? But not, it's, it's not like it's a sing-along by any means. Right, you right. know, <laughs> and so, but it's there. But hopefully, I mean, there's some pieces of music that are haunting mm-hmm. and really mm-hmm. remarkable. And I think that the piece would be really empty without it. And it also shows another facet of, of Glenda's writing. Yeah, and it, if I could say, I think music gives it breathing space, too. You sure. know what I mean? It really Absolutely. does. It right. The music allows you to breathe into it. Right. And music is so abstract, too. I think you can reach people with music where you might not be able to with words sometimes, strangely. Okay. But Well, be, before we begin focusing uh, on sentences from the pen to the page, I, I want to share a poem written by an, inmate, by an inmate in the American penal system. And this posting is from the weblog project entitled Between the Bars, Human Stories from Prison. And, and this is the first of several that I'll share during the hour. 
Like the wolf, I pace back and forth in this cell, wanting to yell as loud as I can, even if I could be heard. Would anyone rescue me? If I were an impounded cat, they would find a good home for me. Perhaps I should learn how to purr and jump up in a lap. No normal person could last 30 years of torture like I have in this cell. I must not be normal then. Recent years seem heavier to endure, perhaps being in a lockdown setting continuously, or just maybe I'm part wolf, ready to run free. And that again was from the weblog project Between the Bars, Human Stories from Prison. Uh, Now before your reaction to that, I would like to state, I did a little bit of research today. Oklahoma now has the highest incarceration rate in the U.S. They they unseated Louisiana Mm. from its long-held position as the world's prison capital. And just as an FYI, we mentioned that Oklahoma has the highest incarceration rate. Incarceration rate. Today, a judge just handed down a $572 million judgment against Johnson & Johnson for its role in the rise of opioid addictions in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Mm. And we know that there are, um, well, there, there are causal uh, connections between opioid abuse Absolutely. and incarceration. We tend to deal with addictions and sort of a... It's criminal to be addict, uh, addicted. And um, we know that Scott County in Indiana uh, has been in the news for a number of years, and I hope that they're beginning to turn around. Now, by comparison, states like New York and Massachusetts appear progressive, but even these states lock people up at higher rates than nearly every other country on Earth. Compared to the rest of the world, every U.S. state relies too heavily on prisons and jails to respond to crime. The top five are Oklahoma, Louisiana, Mississippi, Georgia, and Alabama, and Indiana ranks 23rd. Let's talk about that. Your reactions to both the the posting by this inmate, who will rename who will remain anonymous, but uh, your thoughts with that, and then thoughts on some of the stats I shared. I I'd like to say something. Um, he said in the poem, he said he'd been there 30 years, mm-hmm. and uh, the man that I visit, Philip, um, he has been in prison now for 20 years, and. He still hopes to be free someday. He says he has to. He has to keep that as a as a possibility always. And and there was a uh, I did a um, like a Skype or a, a video visit with him at uh, Harmony School uh, during it was on uh, Martin Luther King Day. Uh, I think it was three years ago. And so he was he was there doing his spoken word poetry and uh, taking questions from the the high school kids, and I think for about a half an hour or so. And I talked to him later, uh, I don't know if it was that night or the next day, and he told me it was the freest he'd been in 20 years. And he said he just, he was so high from it. He said he just felt like he was walking on the clouds because he actually felt like he had conversation with young people that he might have an influence on, because that's what he'd love to do. He'd love to be someone who could um, mentor young people, because he he feels like if he had had that in his life, maybe he wouldn't be where he is. And uh, so that's what that poem made me think of, was, Mm -hmm. was his comment that day about how free he felt in just that 
20 minute or a half an hour time. I cannot imagine, you know, I've been sent to my room a time or two growing up, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but I can't imagine 23 and a half hours mm-hmm. in lockdown. Mm-hmm. Um, and then allowed, I guess, that half hour for recreation, whatever that might mm-hmm. consist of running around an open space mm-hmm. or. Yeah, that's that's at uh, on the death row um, where they where they're um, in solitary confinement. Philip is not in solitary confinement okay. right okay. now. He was on death row for three years at Michigan City, and then his sentence was commuted. Uh, he took a, a plea plea bargain. Is that and. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he was sentenced to go to Wabash with life without parole. And mm-hmm. so he's not, every once in a while, he's on lockdown for either um, because the whole prison's on lockdown mm-hmm. or because of some other something else. You Infraction. Know. But he's not on a daily basis. He's not in solitary confinement. Mm-hmm. I will uh, put a pause in our conversation. I did invite the producer uh, of Kite Line. Uh, it's a syndicated, one mm-hmm. of our uh, yeah. syndicated shows, Mia mm-hmm. Beach. And she was unable to join us today, but has so wished to be here. And perhaps in the future we'll have her on to talk about this. And I said, you know, Mia, if anyone can comment on a lot of these things, you certainly can. She's done the research and she's had the conversations with inmates and um uh, in her own way, has been an advocate for dignity mm-hmm. uh, amidst uh, um, incarceration. Uh, Bill, your thoughts on um, some of the stats or that poem? What does that do do to you? Well, you know, <coughs> I often say uh, the United States we got rid of segregation and replaced it with incarceration. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's uh, extremely racial. Uh, the mm-hmm. prison, the criminal justice system. When I taught at NIU uh, in criminal justice back in the 90s, as an AI, I would always say it's rightly named, aptly named criminal justice because it's very criminal. Mm-hmm. <coughs> but the, uh, you know, United States is the highest, has the highest incarceration rate of any nation in history. In more than the Soviet Union, more than South Africa, more than any nation in history, we have the highest, highest incarceration rate in, in history. 70,000 people a day in the United States are in solitary confinement. And I've been in solitary confinement for mm-hmm. short times myself. Mm-hmm. And I was there for reasons, uh, you know, civil disobedience. I was there for reasons of conscience, and, and I was, uh, had a lot of support and so forth. But I tell you, it can drive you really crazy very quick. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think those are things that people really don't understand what that means, uh, 24, 23 and a half hours a day. And sometimes it's 24. Sometimes you don't get that half hour out. Uh, sometimes you can go days and not get out of your cell. So uh, it's just cruel and inhumane. That's all there is to it. And Leo Tolstoy wrote in his book, The Kingdom of God is Within You. He wrote in that book about going to a, an exhibition on human torture in 1893 in, in St. Petersburg, Russia. And he lists as a number one torture, and you can imagine they've got a lot of ways to torture people. Right, right. He says the number one torture is solitary, it's confinement. And I think it is. I know when I started visiting my guy on death row, uh, he was uh, in really, really bad shape. I mean, really off the wall. They would bring him out in shackles uh, now he comes out and just handcuffs. He's calmed down a good bit over the years. But uh, it, he was just, he felt so weak. He said, I feel like I'm just nothing. And I said, you know, really, you don't know what solitary does to you. We had a Senate hearings a few years ago in which psychiatrists, psychologists were telling what solitary really does to you. 
And I said, the fact is, most people, normal, average person sitting where you are, would be sitting in the corner of the room pissing all over themselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that became a joke. Every time he comes in for weeks or for mm-hmm. months after that, he would mm-hmm. come in and he said, well, I'm not pissing all over myself. Mm-hmm. And so I, he found some strength in that, that he's able to survive this as, as long as he has. He's been in solitary now f- for about 16 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's amazing that he's kept the sanity that he has. Now, again, we're, we're going to state that... Um these are individuals who have owned up to their crime. Well, yeah, it's, most Maybe. of them. And, and some yeah, say sure. that um, I did not get a fair trial. Yeah, that's true. And some did not, as you bore out that's earlier, true. did not get a fair trial. Yeah. Uh, but there are situations where someone does own up to the fact that, yes, I committed this crime that has now placed me here. Right. And um, we talked a little bit about uh, reconciliation uh, strategies mm-hmm. where uh, – victims' families, in some cases, or the victim themselves meets their um, um, offender and somehow through structured uh, conversation, highly structured, they're able to at least um, bring some degree of closure, if dare I say healing, to what has occurred both for the victim and for the offender. Um, And these programs, I I think are growing or they're on the rise or being practiced more or maybe not. Um, yeah, I'm I would led be, to believe that, yeah, but maybe yeah. I'm wrong. I think they're more on local levels you get that. Okay. Uh, and with nonviolent criminals, you're getting more of that. Uh, with with violent crimes, certainly on a federal level, I don't know of any uh, opportunities okay. like that, to be honest. It, they may happen in some places. They, they don't happen on death row. And, and let's put this on the table now, uh, as far as um, the racial makeup of, of convicts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's something that sometimes is discussed, sometimes it's avoided, but the facts speak for themselves. Uh, the proportionate number of African-American and African-American males who are incarcerated. Uh, Bill, do you have stats on that? I don't have them on my mind right now. I know that the, they're way out of kilter, mm-hmm. given the percentage of the population that is African-American and the percentage of the prison population is African-American, it's way out of kilter. Is it not about every three uh, three, and three of every five are African-American? I would guess it would be yeah. at least that high. I think at least. Well, I know on this show we have uh, had guests that have come on and we've had individuals talk toward um, how that by the great level, the fourth grade level, they're able to predict, estimate, and predict Absolutely. the number of cells they'll need, or how many beds they'll need Absolutely. for the prison industrial complex, and sure. you know a lot of the uh, the warehousing of humans is well. Uh, and of course, now we've gone to private prison corporations, private prison, so they're yes. making money off. It. Our governor a few years ago signed a contract for a prison up in Green, uh, it's northwest Indianapolis. I never can remember the name of that town, but it's this prison up there that they turned into the hands of the pri- private prison corporation, and they guaranteed them 90% occupancy. In other words, that prison corporation is going to, that private prison corporation is going to be paid for 90% of those beds, whether they're in there or not. There's no, no politician in the world is going to allow those beds to go empty. Because somebody finds out we're paying 90% bed occupancy and we only got 40% prisoners in there, then mm. that's political suicide. Now, Danielle, uh, how do you take these type of realities and and um, stats and fuse them together to bring impact to the person who is, will be viewing this? And we'll talk about the dates and times, but how are they going to be moved by all this? Well, I think um, 
the, the material that I'm working with, the content that we have that has created this whole show is really from Glenda's perspective. And we will have some of these stats and these figures that will come in between in transition between the pieces because each piece could really act alone. It's an, it's its own island and then they all kind of make this incredible chain of islands uh, as a show. But um, but these stats and everything is just, it's important I think to have the information to understand the gravity of what her poetry and her stories are actually dealing with. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's not, um, it, they may, there's not, a lot of romanticizing is what I, I think I'm saying. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. even though they may be beautifully written and they may be very lyrical, they it doesn't romanticize the reality of it. And even in some of the dream sequences, which there are, it still is. In fact, those may be even harsher than than the other ones, you know. And so, um, but kind of creating an environment that is, I think, isolated and very lonely and confined was the big thing. And, and using that, using the actual space. And the negativity in the space, meaning like the actual absence of light mm-hmm. in the space to create just the the idea that there's not um, there's not a lot of room to explore, but there's you know what I mean physically, and so there there's a, a confinement I think for the audience needs to feel that a little bit too. Mm-hmm. Uh, today I had sort of gone back and forth on whether or not to incorporate a sound effect, and that is uh, still doors closing. Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, you use plenty uh, of those. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I've never had that experience. And, and Bill, you spoke to uh, experiencing the penal um, uh, system um, for, as you said, uh, crimes of conscience. Simpsons. Yeah, and, and thankfully short periods. Uh, short periods. <laughs> I was lucky there. Yeah, um, and, and, and to hear those doors close, knowing that that means yeah. your access to freedom now has... Yeah been taken away yeah. it means a lot to hear that yeah. uh, it's like the reality like whoa this is just sunk in this is what's going on now, i want to share a stat uh before we have another uh reading that uh, i said I'd, I'd intersperse this conversation with for four decades the u.s has been engaged in a globally unprecedented experiment to make every part of its criminal justice system more expensive and more punitive as mm-hmm. a result incarceration has become the nation's default response to crime yeah with, for example, 70% of convictions resulting in confinement, far more than any other developed nation with comparable crime rates. And after this next reading, we'll talk a little bit about the effects of life and death sentences on those serving them and its impact on relationships to the people outside. And uh, let's now uh, hear the second reading that I wanna share tonight. The week of April 21st is the week set aside to recognize and honor crime victims. Considering the constant multi-dimensional suffering they endure, a single barely promoted week seems inadequate. When we consider victims of crime, many of us think only of those who most obviously suffer, those who are actually killed or physically injured, those whose homes are broken into, those who have lost money or property as a result of crime, And while these most obvious victims may be the focus of Victims' Rights Week, I believe it is equally important to recognize those indirectly affected by crime's ripple effect. When I murdered Steve, my entire community suffered. My crime demonstrated that even small rural towns are not immune from real-life horror. 
If anyone was shocked, sad, or even the least bit apprehensive about their own safety or that of their family as a result of Steve's death, they are certainly victims of my crime. Their peace of mind having been stolen from them just as Steve's life was from him. If anyone has been denied a public service because of these poor economic times, they too are my victims. Indeed, my victims include all those whose tax dollars could be better spent on things other than my ever more expensive incarceration. I can never count the number of people who have suffered in some way because of my criminality. Probably most do not count themselves as my victims. Nevertheless, I reflect on the enormous burden I have been my entire life and on all those who have been in any way paid a price for my behaviors. And again, this is a reading uh, from the project Between the Bars, Human Stories from Prison. Uh, that's a weblog. And this was written by an inmate in the American penal system. Uh, mm. Responses, reactions to that. It made me think of a story that um, Philip told me recently as far as um, his dad was in prison before he was born. So he didn't get to meet his dad for quite a while. Mm -hmm. And his mom, single mom, and trying to make it on her own, and he had a brother. And um, and there were so many people in his neighborhood. He is African-American, by the way. There were so many people in his neighborhood in South Bend who were in the same position as far as the dad being absent for one reason or another. And a lot of those the reasons were prison or incarceration. And um, he told me a story about how his mom and his sister, or his mom and his aunt, would get together to talk. And when, when the, the aunt would come over, he said they would want to go to the kitchen and have their, their talks. And so the kids would be uh, set in the living room, which said she'd spread newspapers on the floor, and they'd bring something in there for them to eat, and set them in front of the TV, and they would watch Sesame Street, and um, Rainbow, Rainbow, Reading Rainbow, mm -hmm. and Mr. Rogers, and and he was he was telling me he'd asked me that day if I'd seen the documentary Mr. Rogers, and I hadn't yet. And he said he was a great man, and I said he was a good man. He said he was a great man, Glenda, and I said okay. He said I've got to tell you the story. So he told me about this sitting in the living room watching the TV, and he said Mr. Rogers was our father figure. And so thinking about the victims, mm -hmm. like this man was talking about, and you know, these, so many of these kids, their dads were absent. And he said they would sit and watch Mr. Rogers and think of him as their dad because he was just so giving and loving of all the kids that he interacted with, no matter what color they were. Mm -hmm. And said there was one show in particular where he said to them, he told a story and then he said, can you say family? And they, would, they were just sitting there and they all said family, looking right at that TV. And he was, his tear, there were tears in his eyes when he was telling me about this. And then he said when he was sent to death row, when he was in his early 20s and he was sent to death row, most of the men on the row had had the same experience as far as um, absent dad uh, or a, a father or whoever that beat them that was really unkind and that they had grown up with Mr. Rogers in their lives too. And so they had this ritual on the row, and this was in the early 2000s when I think there were four people executed at the state prison in Michigan City. 
And so this was when he was there, and uh, he said when they got an execution date, well, then the men on the road would fast three days before and three days after, talk fast. They wouldn't talk for three days before and three days after the execution just as an honoring of that person. And so when they heard in 2003 that Mr. Rogers had died, they had a talk fast for three days to honor Mr. Rogers. And, you know, to me that was just a beautiful story about how it affects how incarceration, how broken families, broken communities, broken, you know, it it affects them in so many different ways. And uh, Mr. Rogers filled a really nice gap there for for so many of those kids. It's uh, the power of mystique of Fred Rogers uh, mm-hmm. still lives on, and even now there's a sort of a, a spinoff cartoon um, program that my daughters watch, mm-hmm. and um, it's um, it's really amazing just his approach to so many things from being handicapped to being different mm-hmm. to concepts such as family that we may take for granted. Mm-hmm. But here's an example of, of a child who grew up, unfortunately, um, scarred, mm-hmm. uh, but never knew that. Mm-hmm. And you know, it, what that story just says so much to me about the humanness of the people on death row. Yeah. I mean, who would think that people on death, guys on death row mm-hmm. would be silent for three days for Fred Rogers or for another inmate who's, who's executed? Uh, these are human beings. Mm-hmm. These are not animals. And I, I think that when she t- came, she told me that story. I said, you know, if we could see the people in incarceration as human beings, right. it would change us. Right. And you know, in Europe, ten years is an extremely long sentence. It's rare that you see people in, uh, sentenced for more than ten years in the in the countries of Europe. Uh, over here, ten years is a it's a minimum sentence on a lot of times. I mean, it's just we have bought into locking people away and throwing them away as useless and worthless. Well, I think the other thing, too, uh, apart from that, but a big part of this is that it, it has to do with the difference between justice and revenge, I think, yeah. and, and understanding that the, there's, we're very vengeful in this, in this culture yeah. on, on how we administer justice, if that's, if that's at all what we're doing. You know, and my eyes have been really open to this. Um, I've thought this for a long time, but then working with Bill and Glenda, I really became super aware of, of just the, the corruption and also just there's, it's flawed, philosophically flawed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, for those who are joining us on Bringing On, we're having a, a wonderful conversation, a, an insightful conversation, uh, and a moving conversation um, with Bill Breeden and Glenda Breeden and Danielle Bruce um, on the Sentences Project production called Sentences from P- uh, the Pen to the Page. It's a compelling piece of original theater that examines the value of life, the penalty of death, and a hope for humanity by dealing with the effects of life and death sentences on those serving them as well as their relationships to the people outside. Let's let's uh, sort of shift gears and talk about those relationships with the people on the outside. Um, someone's incarcerated, that's potential income that's taken away from a family, and mm-hmm. that's a, maybe a father or a mother figure. Mm-hmm. That's removed, remove, or if, or it might be a sibling, it might be a spouse. Um, that's, as we talked, we hinted earlier about how communities are impacted 
What other things, uh, Danielle, have you incorporated into this production that speak towards that missing element um, from individuals? Well, I, again, I think working with um, Glenda's material, the, the poems and stories, and that being the source content, uh, we it, it's not the focus necessarily, but I do think that it's a pretty constant through line um, in the show. It, it's, but it's, I would, I would say it's an undertone, you know, um, it's not exactly what, what the focus is, but it is, it's there, it's certainly present, and I don't know if, Glenda, if you want to say something to that. Well, one thing that I've uh, experienced going to visit Philip and being a part of that uh, waiting room group of family and friends that are waiting to get the okay that they can go in and see their loved one. That, that's been a big uh, education for me too because you have to dress the right way, you have to, um, you have to look the right way to go in there and, um, and you know, give them your ID. When I leave the house in the morning when I'm going to the prison, it's like, okay, do I have my ID with me? Do I have my bra on? Am I ready to go here? And now I've learned a new one at Pendleton is that I wore shoes last time that didn't have a heel in them. And I'd done that before and it didn't matter. But last time I had to go buy new shoes because those shoes weren't acceptable. And so when you go in there, you know, you're at the mercy of whoever the guard is, whatever that guard has experienced before you get there. You don't know what, you know, what may have happened to them that morning. And the whole search process and uh, and being allowed to go in, it's, and, and you're not treated with dignity. The families and the friends who come are not treated with dignity, at least that has been my experience. Mm -hmm. And and you go kind of expecting to be looked down on and to be judged. Is it just by association? Yeah, just by association. So it's a heart, you know, so you get psyched up to go. I get psyched up to go, and I have a feeling that it's this way for a lot of people. You get psyched up to go, you have to, because you're really not quite sure what you're gonna run into once you get there. And um, you mentioned the clanging doors a while ago, and I can come and go through those doors. You know, it's not like they're locking me in and keeping me in there, but it still is startling to me when I go in and that clang happens. And, and at Wabash, I think there were six doors that I had to go through before I got into the visiting room. It's not that many at Pendleton, but but that clanging door is a very real and uh, that was our experience when we went yeah. in. It was it was very startling, mm-hmm. and it was uh, a whole new world. And boy, you felt it. You felt the there was just no sounds from the outside, and everything was very different and hollow. Mm-hmm. And that was an experience that you that you just don't have unless you go through the doors and you hear it. And it's and it's not like a movie. It's really different. Mm-hmm. You know, you're in it, and you just everything kind of slows down for a second and you you realize things you didn't think about before you were in that moment. Mm-hmm. One, one thing that Philip said to me one time when I went to visit him, he said, you know, when you come to visit me, you're doing time with me. He said, you have to leave your stuff in the locker that you normally carry, whether it's your phone or your purse. Can't even take the phone in the prison. It has to be left in the car. But uh, your earrings, whatever's your usual, you know, you, you leave it in there. You, when, when you get searched and walk through these last gates into the visiting room, you're under the eye of the camera, you're under the eyes of the guard, and you're here, you're doing time with me. And he said, I just really appreciate that. Are, are inmates allowed to hold their their infant children or toddlers? Yes, okay. yes. 
mm-hmm. are sometimes is, some yeah if it well it's and, gotten tough here lately if unless they have a no contact thing go, going on throughout the prison if it's a if it's people who can come in and have a contact visit they can usually hold their child or hold their child's hand um, but if they're having a note this last year they they had quite a few months of no contact you could go in and see you could go into the visiting room, but you couldn't give them a hug first thing, or like the kids couldn't run to them and give them a hug because of um, infractions that had been done that had to do with drug use. And mm. so they were trying to keep that from happening when it's, you know, I won't go into that right now. Right, but anyway, right. it was, uh, yeah, they, they can usually. It doesn't. I mean, the fact is, studies have shown in all the prisons mm-hmm. that ninety, way uh, overwhelming percentage of drugs that get into the inmates come from employees in the prison, not from families. Because you're searched, you know, mm-hmm. that families don't bring drugs in with them. Mm-hmm. The uh, at, years ago, when I was a volunteer chaplain at Wabash Valley, we instituted a program called Read to Me in which the state library at that time would give us books and, and pay for the tapes. And we would record guys. Uh, this was the first time it had been done in a men's prison. I'd been doing it at the women's prison in India, and we got it into Wabash. And they would read a story on tape, and then we would send the library, state library would send that tape and the book to the child. Mm-hmm. And I remember the first time I did that, this one young man came in and read, and his reading skills were were minimal but he made it through it he made it all the way through it and i saw him a couple months later he he wasn't one of the guys i regularly visited but he saw me in the prison and said i need to tell you something he said i was incarcerated when my wife was pregnant and for five years she has brought my son in to see me but he had never sit on my lap he was afraid of me because this the environment is so Right. Awesome. I mean, you know, right. think of a child coming into a prison, clanging doors, uh, Getting guards searched. and search I mean, and all the kids this. Too, they and he said he'd never sat on my lap. But when he got that book, the next time he visited, he came in and sat on my lap. Changed, changed his life, changed the child's life. And my sense is these days, in the past few years, it is getting more and more cruel. Is simply getting more cruel. You used to be able to sit at a table in a federal prison and, and hold your son or your daughter or your wife, your husband's hand. Now you have to sit three feet across in rows of chairs and everybody talking. You can't touch them. You can't, you know. Well, well, well the public might say, well, we know it's harsh, but you know, you made a bad choice, mm-hmm. and that's just one more thing to think about before you decide to have a life of crime. Yeah. Um, but again, the, the emphasis tonight that we're really reinforcing here on this show is that these are human beings. Yeah. And and also too that and no one is just one thing. Yeah, that's right. That's mm-hmm. the biggest yeah. thing I think is that no person is just one thing, and yeah. and, and we have to keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in this production, there are contributions from Philip Stroud, who's at the Pendleton Correctional uh, Facility. And then also the writing group at the women's block uh, of the Monroe County Jail. Can you share with us what, what they're contributing? Um, actually, that was um, another one of Glenda's great ideas. She said, you know, I, I've worked with this writing circle, and um, they have some incredible poetry, and, and they have a very distinct ritual that they do to create this poetry. And um, she said, maybe you would be interested in putting this in the show. And she sent it to me, and it, it's, it was 
fantastic. And I said, yes, this is a wonderful additional texture as well as a, another perspective. Plus, um, it's, it's from the women's block, which is really interesting. And, um, and we were able to use the work that they, that they sent us. And um, it's, it's, it's a really nice addition in the show. I mean, it, it talks about a different level of incarceration, too, which is also nice. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, um, and largely about addiction being the, the motivator, you know, I think for, for that. And, um, yeah, and one thing, too, about um, jails and the space, thinking about the women. And when they're putting it put in jail, and most of these, like you said, are, are for addictions, uh, they're taken from their kids. Mm -hmm. They are, they are, you know, and often their kids are taken from them. And we've heard a lot this last year about the kids in the cages on the border, yeah. mm -hmm. and uh, how awful it is that kids are being taken from their parents who love them and are trying to make a, a better way for them here, and. Children taking, taken from their parents happen all the time in our country, when it, and it usually has to do with drugs. Uh, sometimes it has to do with violence and sexual abuse, and yes, they need to be in a different space. They definitely do. But there are times when it has to do with addictions that uh, they aren't crimes, you know, and the, the, the parents need rehabilitation they you know they they need a different way to deal with it rather than incarceration and splitting the families up because splitting the families up like you said a while ago about they can tell at a fourth grade level who might who's going to end up in jail it has a lot to do with that with with the splitting up of families and um, and it just starts a cycle and, yeah. it, and it's almost yeah. impossible to get out of mm -hmm. the cycle and those addictions not only put people in prison they put billionaires on wall street yeah. Mm -hmm. They make billionaires off of mm -hmm. addictions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They push this stuff on us, on the on the society, and that's that's clear across the board in the United States that those opioids that have addicted so many and broken so many families are padding the pockets of billionaires. Yeah. Well, we have time for for one more reading before we wrap up this conversation, and this will be uh, the third reading that we're going to share this night. Um, and on the other side, we'll come back and, and have more, more conversation with you. I am so full of joy, grateful and excited about this brand new day. In this glorious moment, there is peace and all is well. What matters most is that I am here and my creator is with me. I imagine knowing this too be a day filled with light, love and laughter. I expect to be guided by the still, small voice and directed on my path. My understanding increases and I am blessed with new wisdom. This is a brand new day. I seek expansion of my experiences so that I am attracting golden opportunities and magical moments. I am open, receptive, embracing and loving all that is. I allow the force of love to bless others through me. I reflect and shine my light so that some will, someone else may find their way. I pray, attention, and stay aware of the magnificence and beauty that surround me. Every vibration of this moment is magnified and I am grateful for another amazing opportunity day. I am an African classic. And, um, and that was shared again by an inmate in the penal uh, institution. Some might say that's a rare 
observation, but then again, others might say, no, you'd be surprised how many yeah, who, who are incarcerated right now have chosen to look at this as an opportunity um, for looking inward. I mean, you have time to look inward. <laughs> I mean, yeah. a lot of self-reflection goes on, And but we talked earlier in this show about how uh, solitary confinement can be so tormenting. Mm. Um, I think of POWs. Um, yeah. It may not be the daily beatings. I mean, some weird way that that might be welcome because it's human touch. Exactly. Right. That's but, true. Um, but now what we talk about uh, just this, uh, you know, holding holding you up somewhere, discarding you, warehousing you, and whatever. Now, what it, what do you prescribe as an answer to you know cr- a crime is committed, um, due process is carried out? Mm-hmm. And then there's a judgment. Now, how do we carry this out in a humane way? I mean, are there suggestions? Well, you know, many countries do it very humanely. Uh, you look at the Norway the prison system. It's amazing. These people learn to be human beings. They in what are, ways? In well, ways? they have apartments. They live like normal people. They're confined to the prison, but they have and apartments. They're, are they and not given skills? They're given, they're given you know, I mean, they're taught skills. And yeah. And, you know, Indiana Constitution says that the criminal justice system has to be rehabilitative, not uh, punitive. Punitive, and we've gone just the opposite. Mm-hmm. We've taken away rehab- we've taken away classes. The budgets have been cut. Used to you could get degrees while you're in uh, the Indiana State Prison. Now it's almost impossible to do that. We've taken away all those things, mm-hmm. and uh, now it's just punitive. Is all it is, and it doesn't work. The fact is, it doesn't work. Our prison system's grown every year. The, the guards union, I'm sorry to say, is a strong one of the strongest unions in the country. Lobbying, one of the strongest lobbies in, in Congress is the guard union. And uh, and I do, I want to say that in my working with the prisons, uh, both at the state and the federal, uh, most of the guards are just there to do their job. And they go home, you know, it's the only job they can get, and they want to go home to their family and be safe. That's That's true of most of the guards. There's, uh, my guess is there's about 10% who love the power, who love the cruelty, and it makes it a bad situation. You know, I mean, they, they do. But that's not most of the employees at the federal and at the state system are decent people trying to do their job in a very criminal system, in a very cruel system. I think along with what Bill was saying about the rehabilitation, and now it's gone from being rehabilitative to punitive in our state, is it's it's amazing whether you're in prison or not in prison. If you feel like you have no self-worth and you have no purpose, yeah. it, you will do things that are exaggerated and drastic and without as much conscience because you have very little to lose. You know, and I think the more you have uh, sense of self that you have and purpose and understanding, uh, there's better chance for peace, peace of mind, and and just in general, I think you you value things differently. Mm-hmm. Most of all, life, and that really matters. Mm-hmm. And I think we have a. There's been a misconception for many years that prisons we coddle prisoners, and we don't coddle prisoners in any state. In this I union. haven't gotten that impression at all yeah, yeah. <laughs> during this conversation. Glenda, uh, we'll, we'll afford you the last uh, few remarks on this as we sort of wrap this up. Okay, I I want to put um, uh, just a uh, wrap my arms around the group of people in this town who work with CAP, the kids with absent parents. Yeah. Uh, these kids have a parent or both parents in jail or prison, and and their caregivers who take care of them. And and there's a you can check it out, CAP, look it up, um, and we get with them two Saturdays a month and provide mm-hmm. things for the kids and support for the parents and. Um, and it's a um, it's a it's a way to stop that 
that school to prison pipeline. Sure. And uh, so I think that's a real important thing in our own community. And that's spelled K A P or C? K A P. K A P. Kids with absent parents. Kids with absent parents. Mm-hmm. Well, on that note, we want to thank Bill Breeden, Glenda Breeden, and of course, Daniel Bruce for joining us tonight uh, to talk about the resilience production of the upcoming uh, stage play. Is that stage a play, stage yes. play sentences from the pen to the page? And this, again, is a compelling piece of original theater that examines the value of life, the penalty of death, and a hope for humanity by dealing with the effects of life and death sentences on those serving them as well as their relationships to the people outside. Once again, the production deals with mature content and is not recommended for children under 13. All performances are at the Ivy Tech John Waldron Rose Bay, Rose Fire Bay, and tickets are $20 at the box office and performances are Friday, September 6th at 7 p.m. A reception and talkback following performances on Saturday the 7th at 2 p.m. and 7 p.m. Or is that talkback? Friday night. Talkback's Friday night. Friday night, my mistake, not on Saturday. The talkback and reactions are Friday night after the performance at 7. See, it pays to have them here seated here as we go through this. Uh, Bring It On is is Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community here on WFHB 91.3 FM and live on the web at WFHB.org. We have an open submission policy, so if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is bringingon at WFHB.org. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address, once again, is bring it on at wfhb.org. Our show's producer uh, is yours truly, Clarence Boone, with help from WF- WFHB News Department Director Curie Greenberg. Tonight's exceptional board engineer was Chantal LaFontaine. Our original theme music was created by Jamil FM with additional background tracks by David Baker. And we also want to thank Quincy Jones uh, for um, uh, bringing us underbed music during those uh, dramatic readings. <laughs> Performer, yours truly. See, Daniel, I have a future. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> for WFHB, I'm Clarence Boone. And tune in next Monday on Labor Day. Wow, already. Labor Day, September 2nd at 6 p.m. for another exciting edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.